Good morning, everyone. I uh, consider it an honor to bring you this morning's message. And uh, as Eddie has read, we're going to be in Psalm 19. So hopefully you brought your Bibles, can follow along. If you didn't bring one on the back, we have uh, Bibles there for you. They would look a lot better in your home than on the shelf there, so please take them, they'd be yours. Psalm 19, we're going to talk about communication today. It seems the communication is always a hot topic, right? You know, how to improve our communication skills, how to be a better listener. So my first question to you is basic, you know, uh, how are your communication skills? I think as a, as a parent having kids, you probably, at least in my case, I've learned uh, how to refine my listening skills and my communication skills with them as they would speak to me. And, you know, as they got older, they were probably figuring out and perhaps on to me and occasionally would ask, Dad, are you listening? And what do you think I said? I said, sure, right? But then as they got older, they were like, well, could you articulate back to me what I just said? And uh, that's when things got interesting a little bit. So sometimes I, I nailed it, right? Other times I could get close to kind of what they were saying. And then other times, perhaps the results, let's just say, were not too, too stellar. So communication involves both speaking and listening. Perhaps you've been in a scenario where you're communicating with someone, clearly speaking to them, but you know they're not listening at all. I would like to take that concept and pull, pull it forward and walk through Psalm 19. So we're talking about communication. So let's take that pivot and let me ask you, how is your communication with God today? And let me actually back up a little bit and ask just some basic questions. You know, let's, let's not assume anything. Does God speak to us today? Valid question, right? If so, how? When? Where? What does he communicate and perhaps more importantly, why? I think Psalm 19 answers most of those questions for us. But before I dive into the text, I just want to introduce two theological concepts to you as it relates to the way God communicates. And the first is this idea called general revelation. We're going to encounter that in the first six verses. And general revelation is essentially how God communicates to us through his creation, through his created order. So there's general revelation, and then there's special revelation. And we're going to counter that in verses 7 through 9. And special revelation truly is special. Because what special revelation is, God speaking to us through his word. And that's from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. It is God's handwritten letter to us. So let's dive into the text and we'll tackle this idea of general revelation first. Let me read through it. And uh, I want you to actually listen to some uh, of the words here that it's, it's saying. 
And actually, one observation, and perhaps when Eddie read it, you might have picked up on it, because we're talking about communication here. And then in verse 3, it says this, There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So the first point about God communing through his created order, it is nonverbal communication. But, and this is a big but, he is speaking loudly through his creation. Look at some of the verbs and the descriptions in these verses. I see the words telling. I see declaring, pours forth. Your text may say gushing, reveals, utterances. Let's take a look at each one. Let's start in verse 1, because I think of verse 1 answers that question, the what and the why. What is God communicating, and why is he communicating? It says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. So what is the, what is the primary communication, or the message that God is trying to convey to us through his creation? And that is his own glory. His own glory. So when you think about the glory of God, that's everything that makes up God. That's all his attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his omnipotence, his, his all-powerful. Everything that you could think about God is on display to a certain degree, even in a fallen world. It's on display uh, for us. It also says in verse 1, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And it's interesting because in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ, the one we just sung about a few minutes ago, is the creator of all things, and by him all things hold together. We see in verse 4, or excuse me, in verse 2, we'll see the when. When does God communicate through general revelation? What's it say in verse 2? Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Essentially, God is communicating to us 24-7. I think verse 4 gives us the answer as to where is God communicating. It says their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. So where is God communicating his message to us? Everywhere. Let me summarize this. God, through general revelation, through his created order, is communicating to us at all times, in all tongues, to all tribes, in all territories. You cannot escape God's revelation through his creative order. So, and I would say, go so far as to say that's whether you're looking through a telescope into the far reaches of space or through a microscope at the tiniest cell, you will see the fingerprints of God in what you're observing. And let me tell you, I know that's kind of like a a concept, but that is a, a concept that we should take to heart, particularly on a day when it's almost 70 degrees out. But uh, you can take it to heart because it's tremendously comforting to us to, to observe and look and see the fingerprints of God in the created order. Let me give you an example as to why I say that is so comforting. And I'll, let me just turn to Matthew chapter 6 here. And uh, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is dealing with 
uh, the issue of that we all struggle with. Anxiety, fears, concerns, struggles. And this is what Jesus does. Typically when he encounters a situation where he's teaching on anxiety and fear, he will grab something out of the creative order, hold it up as an object lesson, and he will juxtapose it with what we're dealing with. Not to invalidate some of the challenges that we're dealing with, but just the mere juxtaposition of recognizing that God is sovereign, God is in control, I see it, can allow us to say, you know what, God's in control of my life too, even if I doesn't feel that way. Let me read to you, it's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, for this reason I say to you, be anxious, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you should put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Why are you anxious about all this stuff? Observe, there it is again, observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows. So wherever we're struggling with, it says the heavenly Father knows this, knows these things. And then the challenge he gives to us is, but first, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. So looking around us and recognizing God's creative order reminds us that ultimately he's sovereign and he's in control, which is very comforting to you. Now, general revelation is comforting for those who know Christ. But let me just give a a word of warning. If you do not know Christ, general revelation has a double-edged sword. Because, and Paul, the apostle, will pick this up in Romans chapter 1, where he's going to lay out the gospel clearly through the early chapters in the book of Romans. But one of the first things he needs to do is prove to us that we need the cross, that we need the Savior. One of his key initial points is that general revelation is enough to convict us. Let me read, starting in verse 18 of Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts 
was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So I think the key as it relates to general revelation is it does come with a warning. And we obviously want to marvel at the creation. But ultimately, it needs to point us back to our creator. So with that, let's turn back to Psalm 19. And what we're going to do is we're going to transition from general revelation to special revelation. And it is truly, truly special. Let me uh, just read verses 7 through 9. And one of the keys to really understanding what God's trying to communicate to us through his word is repetition. So let me read 7 through 9 and see if you can pick up on some of the repetition. All right? It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Do you see that repetition? What was it? Of the Lord. 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 Six times. Okay? God is trying to convey and essentially eliminate any confusion as to who the author of this book is. God is the author of this book. And what I said before, this is his handwritten letter to us. The other observation you'll see, and Pastor Evan, I think, alluded to this when he spoke uh, two weeks ago. You'll see the word Lord there. And that word Lord is capitalized each letter. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. As opposed to sometimes in scripture, you'll see just the word, the letter L is, is capitalized. It's two different words in the original. So when you see each letter capitalized, that is God's personal covenantal name, Yahweh. So not only as opposed to capital L, lowercase o-r-d, which is merely his, a title for him. So not only, see it's honing in here to saying that God himself, the covenantal God is the one who authored the words that we are reading this morning. Now, you're also counted, verses 7 through 9 flow very nicely for us. There's six parallel statements, and it refers to six scripture with six titles. It says it's law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear and judgment. The word of God has six characteristics to it. It's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean and true. And perhaps most importantly, it has tremendous benefits. Listen to the benefits of the, you know, of the individuals who can take the Bible and take it into their lives. Listen what it, the benefits. It restores our soul. It makes us wise, rejoices our hearts, enlightens our eyes, endures forever, and ultimately can produce comprehensive righteousness in our lives. It can make us more like Christ and conform to his image. Let's just take a look at each one of these. Let's start in verse 7. It says law, which is uh, teaching or instructions. 
Uh, so think of it as the Word of God's instructions for living. One of the commentators described it as uh, essentially an o- this is an owner's manual, which never thought of it that way, but it makes sense, right? God is the creator. We're his creation. He knows how we are supposed to live. And uh, so think of it as an owner's manual. Now, although when I think about owner's manual, I, I think there's two types of people in this world when it comes to owner's manual. At least there are in our house. You know, what typically it plays out, you, you bring the appliance home, the box, and you typically, it's always at the bottom, so you have to shake it up and stuff dumps out. And then the owner's manual is there, and now you're at, it's, it's decision time. And um, some individuals, you know, will take that owner's manual, they'll look at it, and boy, they will uh, absolutely, every bolt, screw, washer, uh, will lay it out just as if the, the diagram calls for it to do. And they'll even have the audacity to actually get the tools that they recommend putting it together with. Can you imagine that? So that's one person. And then there's more like myself, who um, probably more of the philosophy, kind of let's wing it, you know? Just kind of size it up and then kind of plow through it. So I think when it comes to God's instruction, my word to, to you and to myself is let's not wing it when it comes to, to God's word. What else does it say in verse 7? It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, that's a, it's an interesting word in the original. It's not perfect as the opposite of imperfect. Now, certainly God's word is perfect. But the word literally means all-sided. So what the original is trying to convey is that the word of God lacks nothing. It tells us everything to, uh, we need to know about him and about ourselves. It tells us about God tells us about who we are. It tells us about the devastating effects of sin. It tells us about the perfect sacrifice of our Lord. It tells us what we need to know about eternity and ultimately how we can be restored to fellowship with God. What's the benefit in verse 7? It has the ability to restore our soul. Restore our soul. That word soul sometimes it's translated differently based on context. Sometimes it could be heart, mind, person, being. It all always, always points back to the same thing. The inner person, right? So Apostle Paul picked up on this on 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he's talking about the, though our outer shell, our outer body is breaking down, it's decaying, through the word of God, we are being renewed inwardly day by day, restores the soul. David is the writer of this, and this concept of having his soul restored was very real to him and very important because David had many bad days in his life, had many tragedies, had many struggles. Let me turn over just a page or two, in, perhaps in your Bibles, to Psalm 23, a psalm that we've probably read many times, and listen to how David's this concept of the Word of God restoring, refreshing his soul plays in his life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He, what? Restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And what is the context 
that David is saying that the word of God is restoring his soul. In verse 4 he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. David's restoration was a very dark time in his life. And I think if we're honest, there's days. It's easy to sing in here. Some days it may be more difficult. And that's where the word of God working in our life to restore, your text may say refreshing or reviving. It's the same concept. The word of God has that tremendous ability. Let's look at the next one. In, back in Psalm 19, it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony. If someone was to ask you, you know, share your testimony, what would you do? You'd probably tell them you know, where you were born, uh, you know, when you were born, perhaps. Uh, you know, where you grew up, what was your family life like? Hopefully, when you became a believer, what you're doing now. So the testimony of, of God's word is God's just telling him, telling us uh, about himself. And it says that the word of God is sure. The NIV, NIV translates this, trustworthy. So we can rely on it. And today there's lots of conflicting message out there as to what's true, what's not true. We can bank on the word of God as being trustworthy. Look at its effect. It says it makes wise the simple. Now this is an interesting one. Um, The root word there for simple actually means open door. Now in the Hebrew language, it's a a concrete language. They like to kind of anchor their words down to something as opposed to the Greek language, which has a lot of abstractions. So what comes to your mind when you, I say open door? You know, it's saying it makes the, why, the simple wise, but it's really saying makes those with open doors wise. There's, perhaps there's a battle that plays out in your house. It does in my house. You know, and it goes something along like this. Uh, could you please shut the door? Uh, you know, all the hot air is going out the door, and all the cold air is rushing in. Don't have to worry about that today, but it, trust me, it does play out. In a few months, it'll be the inverse of that. It'll be, uh, excuse me, could you please shut the door? You know, all the cold air is rushing out, and all the hot air is rushing in because open doors don't discriminate. There's no discernment. And that conversation typically leads to a, a very exciting conversation with my children about electric bills. Um, So think about open doors. You know, don't live, you know, like I said, there's lots of competing messages out there, right? We need to have discernment as to what's true, what's not true. Don't live your life, so to speak, with an open door. Verse 8, it says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. What's a precept? Perhaps you work for a company that has precepts, maybe plastered on the wall somewhere, and there's, there, there are basically rules, guidelines, principles that you're looking to, to live, live by. And unlike some companies that will tweak them and change them from time to time, God's precepts never change. Just think if we just took one precept, one of his commands to us, the greatest command, thou shalt love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just think if that was our, our precept 
And we were committed to living to that faithfully. That would radically change our lives. It's right, God's precepts. God's, even though it may difficult, be difficult to follow, it will never lead, mislead you. And the effect, in verse 8, it says it rejoices the heart. And it brings rejoicing to us because ultimately God's word is for us to save us from sin and to keep us from deviating from his will. We don't know fully what his will is unless we're in the word of God. The next one, the commandment, is pure. The NIV translates that radiant. There's a beauty about God's word. And what's it do? It gives light to our eyes. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and thy teaching is a light. Psalm 119.105 says, This, your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. So God's word is not only light, it's also the path that we're supposed to be walking on. The last two in verse 9, it says, Fear. You know, I think fear can be healthy in, in terms of having a healthy reverence as we see the awesomeness of God. And that's what I think it's alluding to because it says the fear of the Lord is clean. It has a purifying effect on us because I think what the Word of God does is it allows us to elevate God to his rightful place and put us to where we, be, we are as part of his creation. More specifically, it attacks our pride and makes us humble. Makes us humble because God will give grace to the humble. Verse 9, it says fear. And then it goes on to say is the beginning of wisdom. And how long does it last? The word of God endures forever. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. And the last one, the judgments or the declarations from God about what should and shouldn't be are true. God's word never lies. And even though it may be difficult to hear, God's word always will tell us the truth. It will tell us the truth on sin, on forgiveness, on heaven, on hell, the cross, the gospel, hope, true hope, and his second coming. It never leads It's always true. And in the end, an individual who can take the word of God, allow it to work through his or her life, it will produce comprehensive righteousness. It will make us more like Christ. So that is special revelation. We've covered general revelation. And now we come to verse 10, and we've got a decision to make. You know, recognizing God in his creative order... But most importantly, how will we use the word of God and take it into our lives and allow it to do the work that it can? can? Listen to the paradigm shift, I think, that occurred in David's life, how he fully grasped the importance of this and the value that he placed on the word of God. He says that they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, keep in mind at one point, David was the richest person in the world, so he's not throwing around a cliche, so to speak. 
But he's saying, he's realized, and certainly his son Solomon did as well, that there's nothing more valuable than the word of God. Perhaps the question is to us, if someone said, what's the most valuable thing in our lives? Is it our house, relationships, or 401k? In David's mind, he's saying, because he truly understood that it was written from God and the power that it could do in his life, and he said it was most valuable to him. He also said it was the sweetest thing. When this was written, honey was the sweetest thing known. It was a, it was a delicacy. So it got me thinking, like, what do I perhaps, you know, what's that one dessert that I cannot say no to? It's irresistible. What about you? Do you have a go-to dessert that as much as you try to stay away from it, you can't? Now, for me, I, I gave this obviously some thought, and I'll let you in on a secret. For me, it is a chocolate Core Brothers ice cream cone down on the boardwalk. Uh, it, it's phenomenal. I don't know what else to say about it. Uh, probably not the vice you want to have because whether it's the Jersey beaches or Delaware or whatever, there, there's so many of those Core Brothers. It's like every few blocks. So typically what, how it plays out is I pass the first one and the thought is, Patrick, you're eating healthy tonight and I'm on message and I'm good, right? Then I come to the second one a few blocks later and uh, starting to waver a little bit in that commitment, this uh, thing, this concept of healthy eating. And then I come to the third one and... This idea of healthy eating, let's just say it's a distant memory. Not even sure what it means at that point. And cash in one hand, chocolate cone in the other. And like I said, it's awesome. So not the vice you have. And then to make matters worse, now I've got to go down the whole length of the other boardwalk. And they don't sell them anywhere else. So it's always like, well, how about just a small cone just, just for the road? So that's what plays out for me. So what about you? You know, the word of God, we should view it as valuable and sweet. Verse 11 in Cain, contains both a warning and a blessing. It says this, Moreover by them thy servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. One of my former professors, Howard Hendricks, would always remind us, his students, dusty Bibles always leads to dirty lives. I have it written in the, the front of my Bible. It's always convicting when I have that played out in my mind. Verse 12 and 13 gets into some of the nitty-gritty of what the Word of God can do in us. As we intake it, it says, Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. So the Word of God can go down deep in us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's getting down deep. So the Word of God can bring stuff to surface in our life that we're not even aware of. The stuff that we're aware of, the presumptuous sins in verse 13, it will also address, address that. So as you're part of Old Town, you, you'll come in contact with this concept said, that says, Encounter Christ. You'll see it on bulletins. You'll see it on the walls. Ultimately, it's one of the primary reasons why we exist, to encounter Christ. And I will tell you, you will not be able to achieve that without some regular intake 
of the Bible. So that's my application. That's my ask to you today is, what could you do to increase the intake of your Bible? You know, this is a church that believes, certainly, in Psalm 19, the importance of it. You know, in the back, there's a listing of the different Bible studies. I'm throwing out ideas as to how we can partner and help you in this endeavor if you're committed to increasing the intake of God's Word. There's 17 Bible studies that go on in between the two services. That's an opportunity. There's, and that doesn't include the youth or collegiate ministries. There's Wednesday nights. Uh, Tuesday mornings, a women's Bible study just kicked off on going through the Gospel of John. So there's opportunities to increase your intake of the Word and encounter Christ, which is so important to us at Ogletown. Let's see how David ends it in verse 14. He says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know, that, that, is a, that is a great ending, isn't it? But as I was thinking about it and just meditating on what exactly that's saying, I do, do think it begs a question. You know, because David wants to walk blamelessly here, and he, he's praying basically before God that the words he speaks, the things he thinks about, the, the, the things that he does, he wants it to be honorable, acceptable in God's sight. So the question is, what words, what meditations of David's heart um, is on his mind. And most commentators, and this is where I'll close in the book of Joshua, Joshua 1.8. So, certainly David was writing the Psalms at this time. There's not the full 66 books that we have today. And um, one commentator said that Joshua 1.8, in the context that David is writing, would be like John 3.16 to us. So think of it this way. If there was a Super Bowl in David's day, okay, Patriots would probably win then too. But if there was a, a Super Bowl in David's day, behind the goalpost, the person hand, hand, holding the sandwich board, instead of saying John 3.16, it would say Joshua 1.8. Most commentators think that this is what David was thinking about when he ushered those words in verse 14. It says this, This book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it, day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. What are the words and the meditation that David was hoping that he would find acceptable to God? It was the word of God. So my closing prayer to you is, again, that all of us, and it's unfortunately when you preach a message like this, It's very convicting to me personally. So I'm asking myself the same question. What can I do to increase the intake of the Word of God, whether it's through memorization, more reading, more listening to it on tape? And that's my hope and prayer for you as well. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads. We thank you. Um, We certainly at times, when we hold the Bible in our hands, perhaps lose the true meaning of what it is. It becomes routine to us, but it is truly your handwritten letter to us. And as we walk through today, it encourages, convicts, challenges, and teaches us everything we need to know about you and about ourselves, Lord. And Lord, we pray thou so that as we go through struggles, that we could look around at your 
creation, recognizing you're sovereign in control of all things, including what we're going through. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.